Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Dana Johnson. She's the Assistant Professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Dr. Johnson's research is focused on understanding the root causes of sleep health disparities and their impact on chronic diseases. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast. So I was listening to an interview you did with uh, a friend of mine, Neil Headley of the Snooze Button podcast uh, when I was out walking the other day. And I have to tell you that something that you said made me literally stop in my tracks. You talked about the insomnia survey and how some of the questions could be interpreted as being lazy and how this impacts how people answer the questions. You know, this this whole idea that they would avoid answering honestly because they are worried about being perceived as lazy. Uh, the, the idea that it is biased towards this perception of laziness was kind of shocking to me. Can you tell me about the background of this? Absolutely. Um, similarly, I was also shocked the more I learned about this. So previously, I would say the um, a few years ago, it was thought that there was no disparity in insomnia. And um, that that was actually quite perplexing to me that there would be um, no disparity. And so the more that myself and others have looked into this, it really comes down to a measurement issue. So the question that's being asked more specifically, the wording of the question. And so the way that some of the scales uh, word um, around insomnia or trying to really understand insomnia symptoms, it tends to have a sense of judgment behind it. And so historically, so just to give you some, some historical relevance, back in slavery days, there were often pictures and other depictions put up of African-American sleeping and they were depicted as lazy. And so there's this current day of um, concept called social desirability. And so you want to ask questions that or answer questions in a way that are that is socially desirable, uh, socially desirable. And so what I mean by that is if you think you will be perceived one way in answering a question, you're going to answer it in a different way. And so what's happening is that when people see this scale they do not want to be perceived as lazy. And so they're saying, yes, I'm initiate, you know, I'm going to sleep at an appropriate time, or I'm not having interrupted sleep. I'm not exactly sure of all the ideas behind it, but this is just some that has come out of focus groups. And so because of that, we have this idea that there's a lower prevalence of insomnia in racial minority groups. But again, this is really a measurement issue. And so a way that we've been able to uh, really get a better understanding of what insomnia may look like in these populations through these populations is through actigraphy studies. And so this is really the the first step that I saw um, in looking at some of the actigraphy data that there could be something missing here. And so what I mean by that is when we look at actigraphy studies, we see that African-Americans have a longer sleep latency, a lower sleep efficiency, and more wakefulness after sleep onset. 
And so how could that be if we're seeing on these uh, scales that they have a lower prevalence of insomnia or they're less likely to report insomnia symptoms? That's amazing. So then your research doesn't necessarily fit with the current belief system that there isn't a difference in the incidence of insomnia across races. Right, that is correct. And so there are a number of studies, you can look at data from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. There's also some from the cardia study, where they are objectively measuring sleep and seeing a direct difference between what we're seeing in actigraphy studies, and in particular, um, in relation to my work, where I look at African Americans, the comparison um, is often often to non-Hispanic whites, we see that there's clear differences there with African Americans and, and in other studies, racial minorities having poor sleep. But then when we look at this questionnaire data, you know, it's showing that non-Hispanic whites are more affected. And so that's what pushed us to look more at this measurement issue and including this historical relevancy to understand why these questions may be answered differently. You said that your zip code is more important than your genetic code. I mean, this is profound. What does it mean? Yeah, great question. I also I always um, mention that in my talks. I think it's really important for people to understand that the environment matters. And so, as individuals, we are all nested within multiple environments. So, your household environment, your neighborhood environment, and there's different exposures there that can increase our risk for sleep disorders such as sleep apnea, and that can also affect our sleep patterns. Yes. I remember reading a study about neighborhoods years ago and being just, Mm -hmm. you know, it really made me think about it, about it's something that I obviously take for granted, but how that constant everyday kind of stress and change and impairment of your sleep. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And we're seeing more studies on the neighborhood environment and sleep. And so what we're thinking about in this context is really, in terms of disparities, is really those that are um, in low socioeconomic status environments. And so people that live in these areas tend to be exposed to more noise, also more air pollution, which we know increases the risk for sleep apnea, particularly Uh, We're seeing this among pediatric populations. And so neighborhood disadvantage, for example, which is defined by several measures, but basically is an assessment of socioeconomic status. We see that that's related to a higher prevalence of sleep apnea. And it's likely that these environments, um, and there's data supporting this, have, have more air pollution. Now, that's the physical environment. And then we can also think about the social environment neighborhood social cohesion, violence, safety, all of these factors can affect our sleep. And they go through different pathways. But the point is that by knowing someone's zip code, you can have an idea of their air pollution level, perhaps their exposure to noise, and also resources, whether they have uh, walkable environments, so meaning sidewalks, physical sidewalks, whether it's safe to walk in these environments, whether there's grocery stores, other things that can affect our ability to engage in certain health behaviors 
that may promote healthy sleep. So does that mean that we've kind of been looking at it um, with perhaps not the right metric, that it's more the neighborhood and the, and the pollution and the walkability compared to race per se? So that's a good point. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to answer this in two ways. So one is, I think, um, to directly answer the first part of your your question about how we've been looking at this. And so I'm going to make this a individual versus neighborhood uh, level response. So I so most of our work to date has really focused on individuals and we have not considered the context in which they live. Hmm. Now, in terms of the discussion, which you're, you, you didn't say exactly, but what you're really getting at <laughs> is uh, this discussion of race versus place. And so we do see, and, and mainly in my work, I see very strong racial disparities uh, in terms of the influence of the neighborhood environment on sleep. But where this uh, comes down to, or what this comes down to, is really who is living in these environments. And so the discussion is really place. It's really the environment in which we live, but this becomes a race issue because racial minorities disproportionately reside in these areas that are disadvantaged, have more air pollution, more violence, and so on. And this gets back to what I was mentioning mentioning earlier about context. And so historically, uh, these groups have been affected by laws and policies that were discriminatory, where they were denied mortgages in areas that were more affluent. They were forced to live in areas that charged more for uh, different products. Um, and so this is really getting at things around redlining. And so when you are uh, forced to live in these environments that created residential segregation that contributes to the wealth gap, and so on. And that is where we're seeing the, um, these different disparities that are affecting sleep and health. And so um, sorry for that lengthy response, but I wanted to make sure we understood the context of how this could be both place and race. No, I appreciate the detail. You know, there's so many levels to this. And I love that idea of race versus place. Right, right. And it's something that we have to think more about. And then in terms of the measurement piece of it. And so in these studies where we're seeing these differences, it could be that we're not enrolling people from uh, similar areas. And so there could be differences in the metropolitan residents and others that are contributing to these differences. But when we're talking about on an individual level where you have someone um, in your clinic someone that you're talking to directly, you have the unique opportunity to be able to understand the context in which that individual person lives. And so even just knowing their zip code will tell you a lot about uh, their different exposures. And that can help to understand uh, treatment efficacy, for example. So if, if you're encouraging an individual to walk more, but they live in an environment that is not conducive to that, that's important to know. And so you can adjust the, the way that you are um, giving these different recommendations. So knowing that context, I believe, will help to understand uh, and more be able to better target uh, different treatments. 
You're so right about that. And I, you know, I think part of it is that it can sometimes be an uncomfortable conversation. Absolutely. And so the way around that, and sometimes it doesn't have to be uncomfortable, but the the good part about where we are in terms of our resources is just knowing someone's zip code. So that is something that is easily reported, right? Someone comes into the hospital, they give their address or your clinic, they provide their address. And so through geocoding, you can take someone's address, put it into a system, and you can get, for example, a walk score of the environment. I've published a paper um, on the built environment in sleep where we took people's addresses, geocoded, and we got a score where we could determine how walkable their environment is. There's also publicly available data on air pollution levels. And so those are things that you can capture without asking the person, right? And so then you can go the extra step and to ask people about their environment, which is not an uncomfortable thing, just to ask someone Mm -hmm. about where they live and what are some of the uh, factors in their environment that may help them sleep or may be a barrier to sleep. For example, knowing about their shades, whether they're Mm -hmm. blinds or shades in the home that can help to understand about um, light exposure. And in this case, inopportune light exposure that can affect sleep. You know, that's such a good point. You know, and I, so I routinely ask about sleep environment, but I don't routinely ask about the walkability of the neighborhood. And so maybe, maybe I need to change and maybe I need to include that. Uh, when I'm when I'm visiting with my patients. Right. I think that would be really important to understand, really. So both at that neighborhood level, but also at the household level. Wow. So let's take a quick break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 2020 has taught us a lot about the value of togetherness, and the AASM is here to support you throughout your sleep medicine career. From advocacy to education, we offer tools and resources you need to thrive, especially now in this challenging time. Join or renew your AASM membership before December 31st, and you'll have a chance to win some great prizes. Learn more at aasm.org slash membership. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're speaking with Dr. Dana Johnson, a leading researcher in sleep health disparities. So we already know that 80% of sleep apnea is undiagnosed, and this number really seems staggering. Uh, In one of your papers, you had mentioned that sleep apnea is undiagnosed in 96% of African-American people. So the idea that this number that already is terrible, that it's even higher in Black communities is, is worrisome. Why do you think this is? Right. That's a really good question that I think many of us are studying currently to try and understand more. So the statistic that you just provided, that's from um, one of our studies in the Jackson, um, Mississippi area. And so more specifically, it's the Jackson Heart Sleep Study. And in this particular study, we enrolled African-Americans, again, from the Jackson, Mississippi area, and we did in-home sleep apnea testing. And we saw that almost uh, 40% of the participants had moderate or severe sleep apnea with an age greater than 15. And so it was even higher um, 
upwards of 75% when we talked about an HI greater than five. And so we really wanted, right, it was really staggering to know such a high percentage of people um, had sleep apnea, much higher than we, we see at a national level. But um, getting back to your, your question, so we were very interested in understanding how many of these individuals or what was the percentage that were undiagnosed and we found that 96% of those with um, sleep apnea, as defined by polysomnography in our study, had undiagnosed sleep apnea, which meant they were also untreated, right? Mm-hmm. So that was just really, really staggering um, uh, to know. And so some of the reasons, and you know, we didn't test this specifically in the study, so uh, do know that I'm speculating a bit about this. But if we look across the literature to understand some of the contributing factors to undiagnosed sleep apnea among African-Americans, there could be many reasons. And so one that um, I think is is pretty clear is that there's a lack of screening that's Mm. happening. And so whether this is um, African-Americans being referred less for a sleep study or whether the, the questions are being asked at the primary care uh, setting about um, potential risks of sleep apnea. So asking about snoring and other symptoms um, that could contribute to this um, lack of, of screening and lack of diagnosis, really. And then another piece of this uh, could be a cultural uh, piece. So meaning whether or not the symptoms for sleep apnea are understood as symptoms of a sleep disorder in these populations. And so there are some populations Mm. that believe snoring is a sign of um, deep sleep, for example, that that meant they got a really good night of sleep as opposed to this is a symptom for um, a sleep disorder. And so this is really getting at awareness. And so we could do a better job of uh, campaigning around um, sleep apnea and making sure broadly people understand uh, the various symptoms of sleep apnea as um, seen with stroke, for example. So there's been many commercials, right? Um, Pointing out the different risk factors and signs of a stroke. We could do the same thing uh, in sleep apnea, in the sleep apnea field, but specifically targeting Uh, certain populations such as African-Americans who are more um, uh, affected by sleep apnea and have lower diagnosis rates than other populations. You know, I've heard people talk about the chronic stress of racism. How does that relate to sleep? That's a really good question and, and very timely. Um, We're seeing many acts of of racism blatantly um, on our television, on on social media and so on. And so different populations that typically are not exposed to racism um, are starting to see firsthand what racial minority minorities are going through currently. And so racism has been around for many years. So although I'm saying we're seeing this recently, it's being more broadly broadcasted, right? But racism has been around. And that affects us 
physically, emotionally, as well as socially. And so these there's physiologic effects of racism that manifest through stress and anxiety, right? So someone is exposed to an act of racism. This can cause stress. This can cause anxiety. And so this affects our sleep likely through the pathway of rumination. And so you've been exposed to racism um, and you can think about what happened when you lay down and go to sleep at night. So the idea is that you're ruminating about a situation that happened and that can inhibit the initiation of sleep. And the other way this, this chronic stress of racism um, and how that can relate to sleep is through a state of vigilance. So there's there's a wide literature outside of sleep about racism and vigilance. So people that have encountered racism and, and different um, experiences of discrimination tend to be more vigilant. So you are preparing for a certain situation. And so this puts your body in a level of alertness. And then that can affect blood pressure and other physiologic activities that can affect our sleep. Is it that we are utilizing race as a surrogate for poverty or is it truly about race? That's a really good question that is often misunderstood. And so people like to equate race with income. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, people think that racial minorities, which is a stereotype, are all, you know, part of a low socioeconomic status environment, or they're all lower, so have a lower socioeconomic status. But that is not the case. There's quite a diversity of SES within the Black and other racial minority groups within those populations. And so what's most interesting uh, and also quite perplexing in the sleep realm is that we see that higher socioeconomic status Black individuals have worse sleep than lower income Black individuals. And then when we look at the actual gap in sleep duration, it is actually among those of higher SES and comparing Black individuals to white individuals than it is to those of lower SES. And so let me say that a little differently. So the greatest disparity, so the largest difference in sleep duration is among higher income Black and white individuals. The gap between Black and white individuals of lower SES is quite smaller than of higher SES. And so it's important to think about what are the contributing factors to why higher SES Black individuals have worse sleep which is really racism. So these individuals tend to be in environments where they are um, typically the minority, which uh, opens up for more experiences with microaggressions, um, more acts of discrimination. They tend to not only work in environments where they may be the minority, but live in these environments. And so there's also other concepts such as John Henryism, where individuals that are racial minorities, you know, have this they tend to um, work harder or have uh, a higher level of goal-striving stress 
and so on, because it's this idea that people feel that they shouldn't be there. So they tend to work harder and that translates to more stress and poor sleep. So we have more work to do to understand that, but it's important to know that we see worse sleep among racial minorities at higher SES than lower. And so this is not an income issue, but more of an issue around experiences of racism and discrimination. Wow. It's, it's profound, isn't it? So, it really is. So how do these sleep disparities and then you add chronic stress, how does that relate to COVID? Right. So that's a really, <laughs> a really big question. Um, so one of my colleagues and I, uh, Chandra Jackson, we published a paper a few months ago in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine on sleep disparities and COVID. And some of the underlying um, reasons for sleep disparities are the same that we're seeing in these COVID disparities. So uh, what I mean by that is these essential workers that are without worker protections, such as sick leave, they tend to be more vulnerable to the exposure of COVID. And so these same individuals that are typically of lower socioeconomic status and tend to be racial minorities, they are already affected by poor sleep. So shorter sleep duration, poor sleep quality. And so when you take that in combination with um, COVID, uh, um, a particular infectious disease, we know that sleep is even more important, right? So when we sleep, this is our time that we fight off infection. So the idea is that sleep deprivation alters cytokines that affect our immune system response. So you're taking a group of people that are disproportionately affected by poor sleep, and then you're putting them in an environment where they are more susceptible to COVID, so being essential workers and so on, and also shift workers. And so this is really like double jeopardy in a way. So they're already vulnerable to the effects of poor sleep, but now even more with COVID. And so the underlying conditions that predispose people um, to COVID, so things like high blood pressure, um, as well as other disorders, we know are also prevalent among racial minorities. And so now we're seeing this in relation to sleep disparities and COVID. So this just increases the risk even more. And that adds an additional burden to the population. So, you know, this has been such a crazy year on so many levels. And we've all witnessed, you know, this awareness now, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd. um, And I live in Minnesota, so that was right in my backyard. I imagine that you have been getting a lot of invitations to speak. How do you feel about this? Yes, that's a a really good question. And so um, on one end, I'm I'm really happy and privileged to have the opportunity to uh, discuss these important um, topics that have received uh, less attention in prior years, right? So these are important topics that we should be discussing uh, because these really hint at um, health equity, right? That Mm -hmm. I would like to think all of us are working towards. But on the other hand, 
it's it's quite uh, troubling uh, to consistently think about how and talk about how populations are being affected in such a negative way. And so to see these situations like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and then see that they are not getting the true justice they deserve, mm-hmm. you know, makes it even harder. But on on that first hand that I talked about, on the other hand, is that that's what makes these conversations even more important to bring attention to these injustices, to bring attention to sleep disparities, and to know that there's a role for all of us to play in addressing these issues. And if I can take, you know, an hour out of my day to talk about the state of sleep disparities, talk about some of the contributing factors, which include racism, uh, and things like in neighborhood violence, and over that translates to over policing, which translates to anxiety, to bring awareness to that is something that I feel a sense of responsibility to do. And uh, yes, that adds another level of responsibility and pressure. But I think that's something that we have to do, um, especially as um, scientists, as clinicians. I think it's our responsibility to bring awareness to these issues and do what we can to address them. So how can we as a sleep community help to reduce these disparities? How can we change our practice and our mindset? And and how can we make this more than just lip service? Yes, that's um, also a really good question. And I think the first step is awareness. Make sure that we are aware of these disparities, what they look like, and be able to understand some of the contributing factors of these disparities. What are the determinants and how can we address them? So we all must do our part to address these underlying reasons that contribute to sleep disparities, which include things like racism. So what can we do about that? We can challenge the paradigms in which Uh, We operate, you know, address racist acts when we see them. You know, we should really be fighting against things like white supremacy and others that are contributing to certain populations not being able to um, receive the the due justices that are deserved and also that are disproportionately affected by poor health outcomes that, again, are the results of historical uh, situations that have contributed to our wealth gap and social determinants. Because that's really what we're talking about here is these social determinants. So I would say being aware of them, also uh, to address some of these, um, or be able to address racism requires uh, health equity trainings, uh, cultural competency trainings. So doing our part to become aware of our own biases. And so we can address those. And then another part of this is uh, training. And we don't talk about that, but inclusion matters. And so Mm -hmm. it's important for us to diversify the field. And so that means creating a pipeline, training individuals that are from these communities that can um, treat individuals from these communities. And so there's evidence around 
that people from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds are the ones that are more likely to work in the areas that are um, most affected, that need uh, need uh, clinicians and others in these environments. And so it's important that we increase the pipeline and support programs where we can train uh, people to diversify the field. And so earlier I mentioned social determinants of health, and I talked a lot about uh, the wealth gap and how that's the result of historical experiences. And so there's different things we can do, like fighting for livable wages, mm-hmm. right? If we can decrease the amount of people that are in poverty, um, so decreasing the need to work multiple jobs by increasing the livable wage, that can help for people to have consistent bedtimes and also be able to uh, implement consistent bedtimes with their children. But if you're working multiple jobs, that's harder to do. So there's a societal level, um, more policy um, things that we can do to address that. And I would also say it's important to engage the patient. So have patient-centered care have people placed in the community. We have to go to where people live in order to increase awareness, in order to treat them and and remove that expectation for the individual to also come to, um, to always come to us. And so there's um, an increased use of telemedicine now. And so this is an opportunity to allow people um, that may have transportation issues to get the care they need. But in that same regard, we also have to be aware of digital divides. You know, everyone may not have a camera phone, but we have to think about these. And that goes back to considering the contacts in which people live in order to treat them. So we really have to do our part to move beyond our idea of our own circumstances and think about the circumstances in which others may live. And once we put ourselves out ourselves outside of that um, box of our own privilege, we can begin to have these conversations and begin to be more understanding and adapt the way we are treating individuals in order to address these sleep disparities and have equitable sleep for all. Oh my gosh, you said that so well. Thank you thank so you. much for thank you so much for your time and and really thank you for doing this important work. I hope our sleep colleagues will take this to heart and to help close those gaps in care for for racial minorities. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, excited that we were able to have this conversation, and I look forward uh, to seeing progress in the field and many of us working together to address sleep health disparities. Thank you so much for all of your work and for taking the time to speak with us and all of our sleep medicine colleagues today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.